Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for today's question and answers dealing with COVID-19 and the impact on foreign nationals living here in the United States. I am honored to invite you to join me along with my incredible and esteemed colleague, Aaron Finkelstein, who is the managing attorney of the Murthy Law Firm and who has been with our law firm for over 20 years. So I'm going to read out each of the questions and act as moderator for today's session along with Aaron Finkelstein. And we hope that we can address all of your questions, including some of your concerns that you may have about the presidential proclamation that was recently introduced by President Trump, originally through a tweet, finally released on April 22nd of 2020 and became effective from 11.59 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday, April 23rd, 2020. So the first question that people are asking us is, if I get tested or treated for the coronavirus, will that impact my immigration? And the answer from the USCIS is that they are strongly recommending that people should get tested and treated. And in fact, they answered this very specifically by saying that any such treatment or testing, including a possible vaccination, would not be counted or impact in and adversely as being taking, you know, taking a public charge or taking financial aid from the US government. It is being offered free for all people in the United States at the present time. So that's the first question. The next question that we're often asked, and Aaron, I'm going to invite you to answer this. And this is based on the Families First Coronavirus Response Act or FFCRA. And under that, it says, can I take time off from work if either if I'm sick, a family member is sick, or if I have to stay at home either to take care of the children or deal with a similar situation? What does the law provide? So thank you, Sheila, and hello, everybody. The new federal sick leave law, or the FFCRA, does permit people to be able to take off because if they're sick or if a family member is sick, or if the children are staying home from school and they need to be there as long as they're the primary caretaker. Uh, so it does allow it to take place, but you also have to look at state or local laws that are available to you to see how it's gonna run in particular. It runs, it, it, the, the new FFCRA, it runs from April 1st to the end of the year, December 31st, 2020. So there's an optimistic bent that says all of this nonsense will be gone by then, so we won't need it. But that's when Congress established that it would run out. It's interesting because what it does is unlike previous um, FMLAs or Family Medical Leave Act that permitted people to be out, this actually allows the, um, the this is actually a paid type of family medical leave and the employers are reimbursed um, the, the, it, it, that the government reimburses American private employers that have fewer than 500 employees with a tax credit for the cost of providing the employees with paid leave taken for specific reasons that are related to the COVID-19. So therefore, the law enables employers to keep their workers on their payroll, while at the same time ensuring that the workers are not forced to choose between their paychecks and a public health measure that's needed to combat the virus, such as being required to stay at home because they're sick or being required to stay at home because a spouse is sick and they're taking care of them or the children. Department of Labor, the wage and hour division is gonna be the one that administrates the paid, the paid leave portions of the FFCRA. 
Uh, and in order for an employee to be eligible for it, they must have been employed for at least 30 days with the company to be considered for the, for the benefits. Now this okay. is- Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna say it's different than FMLA because FMLA usually requires that a person stay for a full year, that's all. Good point, thank you, Aaron. So the next FAQ or the question we're asked is, can I get fired if I get sick or diagnosed with the illness? So and the answer really is, as Aaron just pointed out, under the FMLA, the employer under federal law cannot fire a person who gets sick, especially under COVID-19 rules, but the law now has changed it uh, and uh, the, the traditional FMLA rule can kick in, which requires that time of the year and it requires a company with 50 or more employees but also very important to keep in mind that this is a fact specific situation depending on each state as well, possibly. And so it's important to discuss some of the details with an employment lawyer uh, or a health professional lawyer, as opposed to an immigration law issue, because from an immigration law point of view, the employer cannot simply terminate you and make you fall out of status or lose your immigration status. The next question that we are asked is, can I file and receive unemployment benefits? Very common question. And how will that affect either my H-1B or my L-1 status or affect my green card? Aaron? So unemployment benefits, are it's not really benefits. The key point is that it's unemployment insurance. Most states have it as unemployment insurance, which means that you'll see that part of your paycheck and part of the employer's contribution is a pay in to the unemployment insurance fund. So since it's, in, it's, since it's an insurance fund, um, and therefore since it's an insurance fund, it's a cash benefit to certain workers who have lost their jobs through no fault of their own. But since it's an insurance fund and it's not a means-tested public benefit, it's something that in most cases, most states allow you to be able to take without a problem. One issue that does come up in some states is that the standard for being eligible for unemployment is that a person is ready, able, and willing to perform a job, but for the fact that they lost their job. And the fact is able becomes a question because if you're on H1, you're not able to work for another company lawfully unless they sponsor you. So from time to time, it comes up as an issue, but for the most part, it's not a means-tested public benefit. It's an insurance policy. And yes, people are eligible to take it and it should not create a public charge issue or hinder their ability to be able to continue with their immigration processes. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, the next FAQ, the question we are asked is, can I, as a non-citizen, receive the $1,200 per person stimulus check under the CARES Act? The CARES, as for those who are not familiar, stands for the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act of the U.S. federal the U.S. government, which basically provides $1,200 for an individual and $2,400 to taxpayers who are filing a tax return jointly that may, who may qualify. However, the uh, Internal Revenue Service or the IRS website explains the qualifying income levels in order to get this $1,200 or $2,400 per, for two people, plus $500 for each minor child. But the rule is, if you're getting less than $75,000 a year, then you get the entire amount. If you're getting more than ninety-nine. Uh, thousand uh, uh, up between seventy five thousand and ninety nine thousand dollars 
it's gradually reduced. And after you make 100,000, you don't get a single dime uh, from the feds because they figure you're well-to-do enough, I guess. Uh, but the rules require that you're either a U.S. citizen or a U.S. resident alien. And the definition of resident alien is a time, the time spent in the United States. Most H-1B, L-1 holders, green card holders, et cetera, will be eligible because the law only requires that the person should have a social security number. Uh, and you cannot be getting this money if you are claimed as a dependent on somebody else's tax returns. And if you have a tax identification number, a TIN, then that doesn't count either. Uh, so some H4 spouses who may not have an EAD card may not have a social security number. And there's a high probability that the IRS will not, or the Department of Treasury will not provide the stimulus check to the spouse, even with a file joint, uh, filing of a joint return. Yeah. Um, we can get into the details of the calculation of resident tax, resident alien. It's a fairly convoluted uh, formula. I don't know that we need to get into it, but it's an average of about 183 days, either, you know, in the, uh, it's more than half the time in a current year. It's, it's a graduating formula. If you spend most of your time in the U.S., as most people on H1 and L1 do, yes, they should be eligible for the stimulus checks. Aaron, it looks like you want to add something more? Oh, no, I was just very excited. I know that you said you don't want to get into the nitty gritty of the physical presence test. I actually love that kind of stuff. As you know, I geek out on that. And so that physical presence test thing is really neat because when you look at the IRS code and they say U.S. resident alien, people immediately think green card holder, I'm not eligible, when actually it's a physical presence. And I, instead of geeking out on the six points or five points that are related to it, I think if people are spending more than half of their time in the U.S., if you're spending more than six months a year in the U.S., you're probably going to be more than fine. Okay. And from the U.S., uh, will this, with respect to a person who's applying either for the green card or trying to come in on the H-1 or H-4, will the USCIS consider that such a person taking the check is considered a public charge by taking the stimulus check, Aaron? So absolutely not, because the stimulus tax check is being written as a tax credit and not as a cash assistance. A tax credit means it's a reduction in the tax commitment that you are required to be paid so to speak, like your tax refund. And therefore, as it's not considered cash assistance, it won't be considered towards mean-tested public benefit and should have no issue towards your immigration status at all. Okay, great. Um, the next question uh, is, I am self-employed and my company received a Paychecks Protection Program or PPP loan from the SBA, the Small Business Administration. Will this cause me to be considered as a public charge? And again, the answer is no, because the Paycheck Protection Program is given to the employer or the business, not to an individual. So that is not considered or imputed to the individual. On the other hand, if a person is self-employed, again, the person should not be considered to be a public charge because there's employment protection. So if you have an EAD card and you're self-employed, you should be okay. And actually, certain self-employed people were allowed to file and request and get the PPP program funding, which was opened up a week after the other funding for uh, regular businesses in early April. One was April 3rd, I think it opened up. The other one was April 10th for the self-employed or independent contractors. 
Next uh, question. My I-94 guard governing my H-1 status is about to expire and I am at the end of my six years on H-1B status with no recapture time and no green card process that has started. What should I do? So if it's before your status has expired, uh, so I'll tell you something. I don't like saying speak to an attorney because I feel like we're attorneys talking to you all right now and we should be able to give you a really good answer on this question. But this is one you really need to speak to an attorney because it has to be customized to your situation. For example, if you're not married, if you're just here and you've got this expiration, you have no I-140 approval, no means to extend. So you might be looking at doing something like filing a humanitarian B-2, asking for a six-month extension, explaining COVID-19, explaining India's closed for travel or that it's dangerous, explaining shelter-in-place rules, so on and so forth, and be able to ask for an additional six months wait. If you're married and your spouse is on H1, you might be looking at doing an H4. And if you're he or she has an I-140 approval, you might even shoot for the H4 with an IEAD with work authorization, because that's something that could potentially help you. If, on the other hand, you have a situation where you have an H1 approval, you have an I-140 approval, for example, but your employer is about to terminate you because he says, I don't have work that's available for you, that's another situation where you might say, hey, a compelling circumstance EAD would fit into this situation purposely. purposely perfectly because of the circumstances. You might say, hey, I'm actually a guy with a high level master's and I've spoken at a few conferences and I've done, I've written a couple articles in some peer reviewed journals. I've been asked to review a few things. I'm not anything that you would imagine, but all of a sudden now that could open up the possibility of an O1. That could be a possibility for you to be able to file. Or but for other, that you would still need an employer for the O1, but an Right. So for that we would need, but for the H4, as you correctly pointed out, Aaron, the B1, B2, or the F2, if your spouse is on an F1 right. student visa, you can do the F2. Right. So all but, those clearly are okay. Go ahead. Oh, but Sheila, here he's saying not that he lost his job. He's saying my H1B status is expiring and I'm at the end of the six years. So there the possibility of switching from the H1 to the O1 could still be a possibility, yes? Or if somebody is able to return back for one year, they could come back on the L1A or the L1B, but they would have to travel abroad for a year. Right, just to avoid the travel. So that's all something that you could potentially do. And then if you have four or five months later left and you're actually doing an entrepreneur H1 and you're running out of time, you might even consider the thought that some people even say, hey, we could try to go for Grenadian citizenship, which gives you citizenship in four months. And that makes us eligible for E2, which allows us to come in for E2, which traditionally doesn't work for people from India, for example. There's just this huge plethora of opportunities. And that's why I say I could keep going. But my point is just, it's one of those things that you really need to sit down and customize with an, with an attorney who knows their stuff to be able to make sure the answer works for you. That's all. Excellent point. And I agree that it could, we could probably spend at least a couple of hours just discussing different possible permutations and combina combinations of options, depending on the person and what they, what they might be eligible for. The next question says, I last entered the United States on ESTA, and I am not eligible for the change or an extension of status. What should I do? So, what is ESTA? ESTA is an, um, it's similar to a B1, B2 tourist visa, but it's for certain European countries that enjoy the benefit of the visa waiver program. If you were born or have a passport for another country, 
that is a member of the Visa Waiver Program or VWP, then certain airports like John F. Kennedy JFK uh, in New York uh, or Newark uh, Liberty International Airport EWR actually allow what's called a satisfactory departure under certain circumstances. You have to go to the CBP port of entry at JFK, request it on a case-by-case -case basis. A lot of CBP ports are now saying they don't want to deal with it and that they want, would rather prefer for you to go to a USCIS office. Um, but you would have to call the 800 number, 800. It's called 1-800-375-5283 and request the person for the USCIS contact center closest to where you're living at that time. Explain that you were admitted on the visa waiver program. You're applying before your status expired for the additional 30-day grace period in order to depart the United States. Ultimately, it's on the discretion of the, the CBP or the USCIS field office, but generally, till now, we have found them to be fairly flexible if you are unable to travel because flights back to the particular European country, for example, have been canceled or delayed. So that's sort of a big, broad, quick overview. The next question is, Am I allowed to file an application or petition with the United States today when I see something on the internet about the fact that they are closed? First, they said May 3rd, April 30th, then May 1st. Now they're saying June 4th um, in, you know, at the end of April. So is it possible, Aaron, to file anything? It's absolutely possible to file cases right now. USCIS is still processing applications even during the COVID-19 pandemic. There are some changes. They've relaxed some requirements, such as they're allowing photocopy signatures instead of what they refer to as wet signatures. Um, and the executive order updated uh, April 22nd, 2020, um, just two days ago, still allows 485 applications to be filed as long as the priority date is current, of course. One other thing is that you'll see that the ASCs, the um, application support centers, are remaining closed. So some, some H-1B extensions or B-2s that previously required fingerprints, that's kind of put on hold until they wait for things to get better and they're able to open up the um, application support centers. Thank you, Aaron. So the next question, which I know is troubling and worrisome to most of you, is what Aaron just pointed out. What exactly happened with the executive order of President Trump, which was dated April 22nd, 2020? And how does it impact my H-1B, my L-1, my green card status, et cetera? She what happens? Before you jump in, I just want to say something really quick. Sheila pointed out to me this earlier, and I know that she's probably going to mention it. But I That's exactly in. what I want to say. <laughs> go, go, that, go. that everybody, because he mentioned on his tweet that I'm going to issue an executive order just earlier, two days earlier on Monday, after uh, e late evening, people were waiting and everybody says, what happened to the executive order? What happens to the executive order? It was not an executive order. It was a presidential proclamation, which actually has possibly less force than an executive order. So instead of calling it an executive order, finally on April 22nd of 2020, which became effective, as I said, on 1159 on April 23rd of 2020, the presidential proclamation became effective. And guess what? It talked nothing about H-1Bs of L-1s of non, uh, people on non-immigrant visa status, on tourists, student, students, et cetera. They're not impacted right now. It primarily and directly impacts permanent residents, he's put, basically put a temporary suspension for up to 60 days 
which he says he has the right to try to renew. And it's very clever he did that because many times when people sue, it takes a couple of months for the lawsuit to happen and for everything to fall into place. And they're saying, oh, it's going to expire in 60 days. So what's the point of the lawsuit? The issue is moot uh, to the judge, that it's useless, that it's not required. And so what we're seeing is that it has absolutely no impact whatsoever, other than the fact that the proclamation does mention that the president has the, the authority to consider and look at possible impact on non-immigrants within the next 30 days. So yeah. that means April 23rd of 2020 through maybe May 23rd. But the problem with the presidential proclamation is it's focusing on employment and economic issues, though he's using COVID-19 and the coronavirus as the justification for this temporary suspension for permanent residents or immigrants entering the United States. And that's the other very important thing to remember about the president's legal authority. The president cannot alter US immigration law, cannot change laws and regular uh, laws, statutes, but he can issue regulations through the administration interpreting the law, and he can only deal with entry of people into the United States, not people who are already in the United States. So for example, if your child or grandchild or brother or sister uh, is living in the United States already and doesn't need to re-enter the United States, the president's restrictions will not impact such a person. And even for permanent residents, there's the, the proclamation explains that if you already were issued an immigrant visa or one of three factors, you actually may be allowed to enter the United States. So there's a lot going on with it, but we will wait and watch and certainly share any updates if there is an impact on non-immigrants issued by the president within the next 30 days. See, and I'm sure if I could jump in for a second. If, you know, this one's very interesting because um, when, you when you pointed out the proclamation, of course, the first thing I do is look up proclamation and executive order and sort out all these details. And, everything. and it's funny because a, pro a proclamation is, ba is basically a strong advisory recommendation from the president of the United States. It is not an order. So for them to stay a strong advisory recommendation is extremely difficult to do. You're gonna take away my opinion. You're gonna take away my recommendation. So you gotta think that it makes it harder for it to go to court. Also, if you look at the way he wrote it, he writes it in a way that says, officers continue to have a lot of discretion. So they can basically do what they want. So he's written it in a way because they know that they basically got into a lot of trouble when they wrote it very restrictive last time. The last thing is he wrote it with something that's called severable. If the courts don't like this piece, I can keep this piece. If you don't like this piece, I can keep that piece. Then it has to do with having a strong bite at this point in time. I think they that if you look at it, what they're saying is, if you already have advanced parole and you're outside of the country, hey, you can use it to come back in. If you were already issued an immigrant visa, hey, you can use it. If you were inside the US at the date of the proclamation, and now you want to go out of the US and you want to get your visa come in, hey, you can go ahead and get it. Everything is narrow, 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 which I'm just emphasizing the point that Shiva very well made, which is like, how exactly is this limiting uh, work in the US when you look at what he actually did? It, it feels like, to, to, to coin a phrase that I've seen in the media a lot, a great big nothing burger to a very large extent. 
except for that one little piece that says, hey, we're going to take some time now and look at all the other non-emergent classifications to see if we should write something up that's a little bit more stronger. And so as, as she was rightfully saying, and I, how I feel is, I'm not as concerned about this proclamation as I am about what's coming. And we can only hope that the economy gets better and things get better, that this will be something that was just a passing thought that the president did because of a Twitter, a Twitter response and not anything that has anything of substance. Good point. And again, going back, it's mostly entry of people from abroad than any yeah. other factor that's being taken into account. So the next question that we get asked, Aaron, uh, is basically for H-1B uh, status holders. So does my employer have to continue to pay the required wage set forth in the LCA? And the reason that a lot of people are asking this question, as you and I know, is that a lot of companies are doing either temporary layoffs or furloughs or permanent layoffs or terminating people or telling everybody you have to take a 10% pay cut or 20% pay cut, 30%. The maximum I've seen is up to a 50% pay cut. Some of them are saying either take a pay cut and continue or some are even allowing their employees to work one week in the office, one week off or work two weeks off and two weeks on, which in a sense is like a 50% pay cut. And can a person on H-1B status stay and be considered to be maintaining valid legal status in such a situation, or will the person be considered to be violating H-1B status by getting only 50% of the prevailing wage as mentioned on the H-1B LCA and on the H-1B petition? Yeah, this is, this is a big question that we get all the time. So to start with, the LCA has two wages that it lists. One is the actual wage, and that could be a wage range that's listed. And then it has the prevailing wage, the wage that the government says, this is the wage that's required to be paid. The rule is that you have to look at the actual wage or the prevailing wage, whichever is higher, and that's the wage that a company is required to be paid. Once you make that baseline pay, if a company is paying somebody above the actual wage or the prevailing wage, for example, if the company's paying, say, the, the wage you're required to pay is 75000 but this guy's been with us for two years, now we're paying him ninety or 100000 and we're looking to do a cross-the-board reduction of wages, say we want to knock off 10% or 20% of all the wages of all our employees to help us deal with this situation, as long as it's being done in a uniform way, and as long as the actual wage or the prevailing wage, whichever is higher, is being met, then yes, you're able to reduce the wage of the foreign national to that level, but not below the actual wage or the prevailing wage that's listed on the LCA. Now, in regards to the wage listed on the LCA, it's interesting because it says that an employer can't bench an employee without pay. You can't tell an employee, go home, don't work, and I'm not going to employ, I'm not going to pay you. But if you read the regulation, uh, the regulation is interesting because where an employee is in a non-productive status, which is due to conditions that are unrelated to employment, which take the non-immigrant away from his or her job duties, the wages need not be paid. And the example that they give is somebody that comes out and says, hey, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm turning 50 years old. I want to take a long vacation with my family. I want to be away for a month. So if I ask for a leave of absence for a month, since I'm the one that's initiating it, not the employer, and it's a benefit to me, so to speak. So therefore, the employer is not required to pay me and I would be maintaining status. 
But that's an example. There might be another example. What if there's a shelter in place rule by the federal government? The federal government says, we require you to stay in place. The client says, well, if all my employees are required to stay in place, I have no choice. I'm going to put the project on hold until the shelter in place rule goes away. Bit of a gray area, not sure. Think maybe you could make an argument there because in that situation, the employer didn't tell you, go home, I'm not gonna pay you. The federal government made it, or the, or the state government made it a crime to leave the house. And because they made it a crime, you can't leave. In Maryland, for example, right now we're under a stay-at-home rule. If you leave the house, unless you're an essential worker, you're subject to a misdemeanor, it's a crime. So therefore you're not staying home because your employer told you to stay home. The employer is not telling you stay home and I'm not going to pay you. The Fed, the government, the state government is saying stay home. And therefore the client is saying I'm temporarily holding off the project till I can staff it and get things back to order. I think in that situation, you could argue that that was not an unproductive play due to the employer, but that was rather a non-productive period of time due to circumstances beyond the employer and the employee. And you might be able to argue that that particular, uh, let's call it furlough period for lack of a better word, is something where the person could argue about staying in status. Of course, it's not the optimal situation. Of course, you don't want to rely on that in first blush. But that's one of those types of situations where you really need to look at it closely and go back and forth to make sure it would be something that, that makes sense and perhaps would give you an out rather than having to withdraw or cancel H-1Bs. Thank you, Aaron. Similarly, the next question says, can an employer furlough, bench, or otherwise render an H-1B employee non-productive and stop offering the required wage if the employee is not able to work from home during a COVID-19 pandemic initiated shelter in place order from the federal, state, or municipal government authorities? To a large extent, I think you might have answered both of these questions. They're somewhat interrelated in that sense. But an important point that the question is, is implied is that if the H-1B or L-1 worker or F, F, F1 OPT student uh, on AEAD card is able to work remotely, work from home, during the pandemic, then the employer has to pay the entire full wage. And for that, both the US Depart USCIS and the US Department of Labor have made it clear that they do not, at this moment, that they're probably okay, that they don't need to file any major amendment or file paperwork or deal with it. They haven't been as crystal clear about all the nuances and aspects of it, but they have said, yes, the individuals should continue to perform work if they're allowed to work from home uh, but if it crosses the certain period, the minimum, the 90 days in the three-year time of an H-1 petition, uh, because you are, have certain exemptions for roving employees, then maybe you need to file the H-1B amendment if you are working from a completely different metropolitan statistical area, for example. But if the employer doesn't follow the rules, of course, or make the required payment, uh, because they're telling people either they won't pay them because the employee cannot work from home uh, or is unable to work or the client, the end client terminates the contract, for example, then if the employer doesn't either ter correctly terminate the employee, bona fide termination or what have you, the employer could be exposed to liability such as fines and back wage obligations and in serious cases debarment from the U.S. Department of Labor for temporary and permanent immigration programs for a certain period of time. In fact, if you look at the 20 Code of Federal Regulations, 
Section 655.810, little d. Debarment prohibits the United States from even approving both non-immigrant and immigrant petitions filed by such an employer who has been debarred. However, in this case, like Aaron and I were just talking, we don't know if this is clearly the employer's fault. Clearly, we know it isn't because obviously the employer was not in, did not initiate this. It wasn't an employer termination. It was factors outside of the employer's control, like a pandemic. It's because the federal or the state or the municipal local government is requiring people not to travel or to work or to leave the home. But we have asked Department of Labor for a clarification, uh, but the Department of Labor has not yet provided specific guidance and is not willing to comment on this issue, probably because they're hoping that this issue will be no longer an issue uh, in the next few weeks. But it seems to be taking obviously much longer with continual postponements of the restart date for the economy here in the United States. And I understand it's similar in other countries like India. So it's something that we will monitor and we will share with you if we have any updates on the world's most popular legal website, murti.com. So always go there and we will post any updated information by the federal government, the state government, Department of Labor, USCIS, or the president if there's another proclamation or an executive order in this situation. Yeah, and one, one thing, Sheila, also is that there's something that says that in the absence of guidance from the government, a reasonable interpretation, not an extraordinary or crazy interpretation, but a reasonable interpretation generally should be accepted. So if, for example, you took a reasonable interpretation of circumstances and then the government came out against what you did, you would be in a very defensible position if you needed to go in front of an administrative law judge or if you needed to go in front of a federal, uh, a federal, uh, a federal judge to explain why and how that you did it. So if you're going to do something, the key to this is to document, document, document document everything that you do so that if it comes to a point in time that you have to defend your actions, they shouldn't look arbitrary, they should look well thought out, and they should look well considered, and they should look reasonable. The absence of their giving guidance to the contrary does give a little bit of a window for a drop more flexibility, just not to go too overboard, that's all. Good points. Now we might have answered this, but the next question says, what steps should an employer have to take if they want to convert an H-1B employee from full-time to part-time status? So the rules have not changed. So the rules say that if you want to go part-time status, you need an LCA that covers the duration of time you're going to be working, both the hours and it, need to cover, and it needs to cover the period of time. So you're going to need a new LCA. And because you're making a material change to the work, you're going to also need to file an amended H-1B petition to the USCIS. Now, an amended petition does not need to be an extended and amended petition. So you could just file for whatever the duration of time is left on the H-1, especially newly approved H-1s that are approved for two or three years, but you would have to file the amendment. Once you get the receipt notice of the amendment, the employee would then be in a position to start working the reduced hours at that point in time. Okay, thank you, Aaron. The next question says, what steps does the employer have to take in order to make a bona fide determination of its obligation to pay the required wage. In fact, just the other day when I was speaking with someone, the person said, my employer told me verbally, but I don't have an email, I don't have a document, I don't have anything signed. Uh, but the person knew that the person was terminated. So there are specific regulations that deal with 
the specific requirements of how an employer is required to make a bona fide determination under 20 CFR 655.731 C7 to little i's, the payment of the required wage obligation need not be made by the employer if there's a bona fide determination of the employer-employee relationship. Now, the Department of Homeland Security regulations require the employer to notify the USCIS that the employment relationship has been terminated, like, for example, revoking the H-1B petition approval. In that example that I just told you, the employee who spoke to me on the phone said, my employer has not revoked my H-1 petition with the USCIS. So if the employer properly terminates the employee, notifies them, terminates it to be on the safe side, the employer then notifies the USCIS, revokes the petition, then the employee's wage can be stopped from that time. And the employer is required to pay a one-way return transportation ticket back to the employee to return back if the person is on H-1B status, not on L-1 status. It does not include family members. Um, and it's only through that day, but under the January 17, 2017 regulations, the employee has an additional 60 days of grace period from the date of termination. It's the earlier, earlier of the, either the date of termination or if the I-94 card is still valid, let's say it's valid for another one year or two years more, then it's 60 days in those cases. Or if the I-94 card is already expired, the person is actually required to uh, depart the United States. And within that time, we usually tell them to file either what we discussed early on, to file the change of status to F1, to B1, B2, to H4, to L2, to whatever, to your spouse's status. Find, you know, if you're within the 60-day grace period, file the required paperwork with the USCIS. And while it is pending, the person is legally allowed to keep staying in the United States while that change of status is pending. Uh, Aaron, you wanted to add something? No, I agree with everything that you're saying. There also is something that the government has published on their website, on the USCIS website, which just talks about the nunk-pro-tunk, the ability to get reinstated back into status. There's invariably going to be a lot of things that are not going to sort in people's favor. People are going to miss a deadline here, miscalculate 60 days there. Something will get denied after a 994 expired when it was an H1 extension, which will put the person in unlawful presence. All of these things are going to happen. It's reality of the situation, but it's also reality of the situation is I can't hop on a plane, fly 12 hours and solve my problem anymore. I can't go home and then go and get a visa and come back because that requires me to sit six inches away from somebody who might have a cough and I'm gonna end up killing my parents to go home because of your immigration law, just insane. So nobody's gonna expect you to do that. Immigration does have this rule that says, look, we have a rule in the books. We're not creating a new rule for you, but we have a rule in the books. It's called non-protonc. It allows for reinstatement. You make a good argument. We're going to try our best to see that argument fits in, and we're going to use as much flexibility as possible. I think that we're all human beings. I think we all have a heart. I think we all realize that we're not going to expect other people to put ourselves in, in harm's way, in life and death type of harm way, or to put our family in that type of harm's way. So there is a good expe expectation 
that if you were to file something even non-proton, even for reinstatement, that the government would likely be able to approve that case as well. So even if you miss all of these things that we're describing to you and say, oh my God, I don't think that means that the case is lost. I just mean means you have to put it to the next gear. And again, really knowing what you're doing and being able to apply it that way is very, very important. Not giving up and pushing forward no matter what. I think that, in that internal intestinal fortitude, that determination that many entrepreneurs and many businessmen and many people who come from different countries have to kind of push forward through adversity, I think that's what's going to show that, that, the, the, that this community is going to shine and going to succeed because of these types of things that are coming up. And so believing in that you, what we are filing is, is, has a valid legal basis, these circumstances of COVID-19 are beyond the control of any one of us. And so asking the government for humanitarian relief or discretionary relief or the non-proton that Aaron just mentioned makes perfect sense. And so I think the important thing is to continue to believe in your case, fight for it, demand justice, and never give up. Again, the greatness of America is that it's a democracy, it's a constitution, that the constitution is the paramount document that determines and the interpretation of every single statute, law, or uh, uh, regulation in this country. And so we can continue to support you, your family, your friends, as they deal with the complex and ever-changing laws, rules, and regulations in this very unusual time of the COVID-19 or coronavirus pandemic that is going on. We have gone through all of the questions that were given to us and the time that was allotted to us. So on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, as president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm, on behalf of Aaron Finkelstein, our esteemed and very knowledgeable and brilliant managing attorney of the Murthy Law Firm, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, I want to thank you for your time in joining us as we try to explain and understand the subtleties, the nuances, and the complexities of U.S. immigration law and the options for your family members who may be on F-1 student visa, F-2 dependent, H-1B temporary workers, or H-4, L-1 intra-company transfer, or L-2s, O1, P1, Q1, any status, F1 students, F1 OPT, we at the Murthy Law Firm continue to want to help you and work with you and guide you. And we will post any and all updates on murthy.com. Again, thank you for joining us today. Have a good day and stay safe. Thank you.